classic podcast for my mother. She read to me when I was little, so now I'm returning the favour, and you're welcome to listen along. It's Sunday, and that means I'm reading a classic. Thursdays are for offbeat stuff, but whatever I'm reading, it's always great writing. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti Vium Pacem. Amen. Tonight we are back to the 15th century. I am exploring some great writing that was unfortunately awful in its effect. Malleus Maleficarum is a book that was published in 1486 in Germany. The title is commonly translated to mean The Hammer of Witches because it is a treatise on demonology and witchcraft and it sets out a clear legal theological basis for wanting to exterminate witches and a practical guide on how that could be managed in the courts. And it was used in that way throughout the witch craze of the 16th and 17th centuries and even into the 18th century. 36 editions between 1486 and 1669. By our standards today, it is a mad book. And it was so awful and great that every magistrate everywhere in Europe and even the Americas had the malleus at the ready for any witchcraft cases. Why? What made it so popular? And it was popular the best-selling book apart from the Bible until it got gazumped by Pilgrim's Progress in 1678. That's not bad, nearly 200 years at the top of the charts. What made the Malleus Maleficarum so enduringly relevant? Well, it is awful, but it is quite brilliant in how it is laid out and persuasive in its way. So that's one reason. The printing press is another reason. It was only about 30 years old when the Malleus came into being, so that book could be distributed with ease and read by a wide audience. And the rise of Protestantism in the 15th century was challenging papal authority and Catholics, and that meant Protestants were pretty keen to show off how anti-evil they were by, for example, witch-hunting. And the counter-reformation that reinvigorated papal authority helped too. And that's more reasons for the Malleus's relevance. A quick note before I continue. Maleficarum, not Maleficorum. A, or A in Latin, denotes the feminine. The Malleus is the first book to really pin witch status on women. Prior to this, men could be witches. And if you're thinking about warlocks, that's actually a 19th century concept, coming from Sir Walter Scott of The Lady of the Lake and Ivanhoe fame, not a 15th century thing. So, the Malleus Maleficarum. It was written by two Dominican clergy who had been appointed as inquisitors by Pope Innocent VIII under the Papal Bull or Papal Decree of December 1484 called Sumis Desiderantes Affectibus, 
which was all about witchcraft being a terrible thing and authorising the two guys to do what they could about it as inquisitors. The two authors were a German named Heinrich Kramer and another German, Jacobus Sprenger. There is disagreement among academics about the extent of Sprenger's contribution. Some think Kramer did the lot. I won't get into that, but I'll just note that everything about this book is mad. That papal bull? Kramer asked for it. It wasn't the Pope's idea. Kramer then put it in the book at the front so it looked as if the Pope endorsed the book. But the Pope had no clue about it till it hit the shelves, as it were. In fact, the Vatican added it to the Index of Forbidden Works in 1490. That's within four years of it being published. As soon as they realised how mad it was and had a chance to check it out, they forbade it. So the Malleus was never a Vatican thing. And now you can set straight anyone who says otherwise. Kramer also went to the University of Cologne looking for a positive review from a bunch of theologians. And they, well, they gave it one star instead. They condemned it. So what did Kramer do? He forged their signatures and put their approval, in quotation marks, in the book anyway. The Italians would say, che palle. God, the balls on that guy. He really hated those witches. And that is because Kramer was a guilty until proven innocent kind of guy. And one particular case really set him off. There he was, an inquisitor under a papal bull, and off he went to Innsbruck to convict Helena Schuberin for being a witch. But she wasn't convicted. Kramer failed. She was acquitted because of Kramer's illogical and thoroughly biased questioning. In fact, he was such a pill, the good burghers of Innsbruck ran him out of town. His papal bull appointment meant nothing to them. And so he wrote the Malleus Maleficarum, as a synthesis of all his ideas, and having learned the lessons of Innsbruck, to be more thorough and more clear in what he was hammering. The Malleus Maleficarum is divided into three parts. Part 1. Belief in witches is correct. Failure to believe it is heresy, and most witches are women. Part 2. Witchcraft in practice is very varied. All sorts of different witchy things that can happen. Part 3. Judicial procedures for witch trials. How to detect, try, sentence, and destroy a witch. It was very long had a detailed table of contents so that a reader could cross-reference between the different parts. And each of the parts was split into questions. By way of example, question one in part one is, whether the belief that there are such beings as witches is so essential a part of the Catholic faith that obstinacy to maintain the opposite opinion manifestly reeks of heresy. So, 
It wasn't the Vatican or the theological courts who adopted the malleus. They rejected it. It was the secular courts. What is a magistrate to do if someone comes before him accused of being a witch? Check the malleus maleficarum, of course. I'm going to read a short excerpt from part two to give you a taste of how mad this book is. From part two, Witchcraft in Practice. Question 14. How witches injure cattle in various ways. I'm not joking, that is one of the questions, and there's nothing funny about what follows. See if you can follow the logic along. It's not as easy as you think. Let's begin. When St. Paul said, Doth God care for oxen? He meant that, though all things are subject to divine providence, both man and beast each in its degree, yet the sons of men are especially in his governance and under the protection of his wings. I say, therefore, if men are injured by witches, with God's permission, both the innocent and just as well as sinners, and if parents are bewitched in their children as being part of their possessions, Who can then presume to doubt that with God's permission, various injuries can be brought by witches upon cattle and the fruits of the earth, which are also part of men's possessions? For so Job was stricken by the devil and lost all his cattle, so also there is not even the smallest farm where women do not injure each other's cows by drying up their milk and very often killing them. But first, Let us consider the smallest of these injuries, that of drying up the milk. If it is asked how they can do this, it can be answered that milk is naturally menstrual in any animal, and like another flux in women, when it is not stopped by some natural infirmity, it is due to witchcraft that it is stopped. Now the flow of milk is naturally stopped when the animal becomes pregnant, and it is stopped by an accidental infirmity, such as when the animal eats some herb, the nature of which is to dry up the milk and make the cow ill. But witches can cause this in various ways by their witchcraft. For on the more holy nights, according to the instructions of the devil, and for the greater offence to the divine majesty of God, a witch will sit down in a corner of her house with a pail between her legs stick a knife or some instrument in the wall or a post, and make as if to milk it with her hands. Then she summons her familiar, who always works with her in everything, and tells him that she wishes to milk a certain cow from a certain house, which is healthy and abounding in milk. And suddenly the devil takes the milk from the udder of that cow, and brings it to where the witch is sitting, as if it were flowing from the knife. Honestly, this man is out of his mind. But when this is publicly preached to the people, they get no bad information by it. For however much anyone may invoke the devil and think that by this alone he can do this thing, he deceives himself because he is without the foundation of that perfidy, not having rendered homage to the devil or abjured the faith. I have set this down because some have thought that several of the matters of which I have written ought not to be preached to the people, on account of the danger of giving them evil knowledge. 
Whereas it is impossible for anyone to learn from a preacher how to perform any of the things that have been mentioned. But they have been written rather so to bring a great crime into detestation, and should be preached from the pulpit, so that judges may be more eager to punish the horrible crime of the abnegation of the faith. Yet they should not always be preached in this way, for the secular mind pays more attention to temporal losses being more concerned with earthly than spiritual matters. Therefore, when witches can be accused of inflicting temporal loss, judges are more zealous to punish them. But who can fathom the cunning of the devil? I know of some men in a certain city who wished to eat some May butter one May time. And as they were walking along, they came to a meadow and sat down by a stream. One of them, who had formed some open or tacit pact with the devil, said, I will get you the best May butter. And at once he took off his clothes and went into the stream, not standing up, but sitting with his back against the current. And while the others looked on, he uttered certain words and moved the water with his hands behind his back. And in a short time, he brought out a great quantity of butter of the sort that the countrywomen sell in the market in May, and the others tasted it and declared that it was the very best butter. From this we can deduce, first, the following fact concerning their practices. They are either true witches, by reason of an expressed pact formed with the devil, or they know by some tacit understanding that the devil will do what they ask. In the first case, there is no need for any discussion, for they are true witches. But in the second case, they owed the devil's help to the fact that they were blasphemously offered to the devil by a midwife or by their own mothers. But it may be objected that the devil perhaps brought the butter without any compact, expressed or tacit, and without any previous dedication to himself. It is answered that no one can ever use the devil's help in such matters without invoking him, and that by that very act of seeking help from the devil, he is an apostate from the faith. For if invocations, conjurations, fumigations and adorations are used, then an open pact is formed with the devil, even if there has been no surrender of body and soul, together with explicit abjuration of the faith, either wholly or in part. For by the mere invocation of the devil, a man commits open verbal apostasy. But if there is no spoken invocation, but only a bare action from which follows something that could not be done without the devil's help, then whether a man does it by beginning in the name of the devil, or with some other unknown words, or without any words but with that intention, then it is apostasy of deed, because that action is looked for from the devil. But since to expect or receive anything from the devil is always a disparagement of the faith, it is also apostasy. So it is concluded that, by whatever means that sorcerer procured the butter, it was done with either a tacit or an expressed pact with the devil. And since, if it had been with an expressed pact, he would have behaved after the usual manner of witches, 
it is probably that there was a tacit or secret pact originating either from himself or from his mother or a midwife. And I say that it arose from himself, since he only went through certain motions and expected the devil to produce the effect. The second conclusion we can draw from this and similar practices is this. The devil cannot create new species of things. Therefore, when natural butter suddenly came out of the water, the devil did not do this by changing the water into milk, but by taking butter from some place where it was kept and bringing it to the man's hand. Or else he took natural milk from a natural cow and suddenly churned it into natural butter. For while the art of women takes a little time to make butter, the devil could do it in the shortest space of time and bring it to the man. It is in the same way that certain dealers in magic, when they find themselves in need of wine or some such necessity, merely go out in the night with a flask or a vessel and bring it back suddenly filled with wine. For then the devil takes natural wine from some vessel and fills their flasks for them. And with regard to the manner whereby witches kill animals and cattle, it should be said that they act very much as they do in the case of men. They can bewitch them by a touch and a look, or by a look only, or by placing under the threshold of the stable door, or near the place where they go to water, some charm or periapt of witchcraft. For in this way those witches who were burned at Ratisbon, of whom we shall say more later on, were always incited by the devil to bewitch the best horses and the fattest cattle. And when they were asked how they did so, one of them, named Agnes, said that they hid certain things under the threshold of the stable door. And asked what sort of things, she said, the bones of different kinds of animals. She was further asked in whose name they did this, and answered, in the name of the devil and all the other devils. And there was another of them, named Anna, who had killed twenty-three horses in succession belonging to one of the citizens, who was a carrier. This man, at last, when he had bought his twenty-fourth horse and reduced to extreme poverty, stood in his stable and said to the witch, who was standing in the door of her house, See, I have bought a horse and swear to God, his holy mother, that if this horse dies, I shall kill you with my own hands. At that, the witch was frightened and left the horse alone. But when she was taken and asked how she had done these things, she answered she had done nothing but dig a little hole, after which the devil had put in it certain things unknown to her. From this it is concluded that the witch cooperates sufficiently if it is only by a touch or a look, for the devil is permitted no power of injuring creatures without some cooperation on the part of the witch, as has been shown before. For shepherds have often seen animals in the fields given three or four jumps into the air and then suddenly fall to the ground and die and this is caused by the power of witches at the insistence of the devil. In the Diocese of Strasbourg, between the town of Fiesen and Mount Ferrer, 
a certain very rich man affirmed that more than forty oxen and cows belonging to him and others had been bewitched in the Alps within the space of one year, and that there had been no natural plague or sickness to cause it. To prove this, he said that when cattle die from some change plague or disease, they do not do so all at once, but by degrees, but that this witchcraft had suddenly taken all the strength from them, and therefore everyone judged that they had been killed by witchcraft. I have said forty head of cattle, but I believe he put the number higher than that. However, it is very true that many cattle are said to have been bewitched in some districts, especially in the Alps, and it is known that this form of witchcraft is unhappily most widespread. We shall consider some similar cases later, in the chapter where we discuss the remedies for cattle that have been bewitched. And that's where we'll leave it tonight. Humorless, illogical, and utterly convinced of its correctness. Ugh. The Malaeus Maleficarum is hard going. That kind of thing is what it must be like to be caught up in a conversation with Greta Thunberg. But I digress. It is a mad work, and the Malleus madness continued into the 20th century, because one of the first translators of it into English was Augustus Montague Summers, an Englishman. His preface is astonishing, because he loves the Malleus thinks it's a masterpiece of true facts, and he was out of his mind. He called himself Reverend Alphonsus Joseph Mary Auguste Montague Summers, but he never was a reverend. He just really believed in witches, and vampires, and werewolves. How fitting for a translation of the Malleus being done by a bloke who was nuttier than a fruitcake. Rather like Kramer himself, in my opinion. Dear me, I'm going to need more than just a cup of tea and some cake to get over that reading. I'll need something a lot stronger. So join me next time when I read Kingsley Amos on Drinking. Till then, take care. It's slippery out there. And thanks for listening to Nudie Reads.